morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, February 6th, we are studying Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 38. Jesus' miracles have already shown his power over sickness as one of sin's effects. Today's text will reveal him as the one who has power even over the worst effect of sin, that is, the power even over death. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor John Busman. Pastor Busman serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Coleman, Alabama. Pastor Busman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks so much. It's great to be back. As we get started this morning, Pastor Busman, give us some context in Matthew's Gospel. What do we need to know that will help us in today's text? Well, we've uh, come through what has been called uh, the most famous sermon ever preached, I guess, with the Sermon on the Mount. And in that sermon, we see Jesus uh, displaying himself as the as the new and greater lawgiver, the new and greater Moses, bringing the Pharisees and the crowds back to what the law is really about. And now, as we begin to shift into this next section, especially here in chapter 9, moving into chapter 10, it's interesting that Jesus really takes on the the qualities of a new and greater Joshua as uh, he's going through the land uh, in this conquest of sorts, a conquest not over the Canaanites and Perizzites and all the other groups there, but uh, over the true evils of the land, the sickness, the suffering, and of course, as you've mentioned, even death itself. So it's a really really neat section here as uh, Jesus takes on these things head on and then moves toward the end of sending his own uh, his own 12 through the land to do the very same thing. Hmm. I, maybe I've heard that before, but I, I don't recall when, or it, it hasn't been something that's been on my mind previously. I, I know the, the part about where we see Jesus being a greater than Moses, but to, to see him as, as greater than Joshua, too, I think is a I like that parallel. Can you can you flesh that out a little bit more as to how we see Jesus? I mean, maybe both parts would be helpful when we think about Moses and Joshua in the Old Testament, how they how they come together, and then how we see Jesus show himself greater than both. Could you develop that just a little bit more for us this morning? Sure. You know, we're really quick to to compare Jesus and Moses and show how Jesus is is the new and greater Moses, especially with you know his five discourses in Matthew and. You know, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you these kinds of things. I think that we tend not to want to connect Jesus to Joshua. Not that the connection is not there, but as soon as we start talking about Joshua, of course, the idea of conquest comes up, and then you have to get into that touchy subject of, you know, can you believe God would send his people into the land to, you know, kill everybody who was there? And, and people don't generally know what to do with that without the greater context of scriptures. But as we see that what the conquest of the land was 
truly about and God's intention there. And then we see Jesus come in and fulfill that uh, in ridding the land of what is plaguing it as a result of the fall. In the Old Testament, we see that it was uh, primarily idolatry, and, uh, and this ultimately led God's people away from him. Uh, but now Jesus hits it head on. And sure, we see idolatry and things like that with the Pharisees, but as Jesus goes to even the least of these, um, like Jairus's daughter, like this woman with the issue of blood, uh, he's, he's showing what the cleansing of the land is truly all about uh, in creating a uh, new and greater land, this return to Eden, showing us what creation will ultimately be like in the presence of the risen and glorified Christ forever, that sickness certainly has no, uh, no command over creation anymore, sin, death, none of it. It's all gone, and Jesus shows us that today in the text, and this conquest, of course, without fail, uh, with leaving no remnant of sin, pain, or death, uh, that he hits it head on uh, for us this morning. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a, I like that. I like that a lot. And and I think it's a helpful way, as you said, not only to, to see what's going on here, but then to go back and read, say, the book of Joshua, and and read it in light of what Jesus does. As, as a previous guest said, that the what Jesus does casts a shadow over the entire Old Testament, and 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 so it's it's ref, it, you're seeing that the shadow of what Jesus is coming to do there, and and so to to see that even in the book of Joshua is just something I never reflected on, and I I like it. I'm going to give it some more thought, Pastor Busman. So, but we need to we need to look at Matthew chapter nine here this morning. Right, so I'm going to go ahead sure. and read this text. So Matthew nine, beginning at verse eighteen, while he that's Jesus was saying these things to them. Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, 
The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's our text for the morning, Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 38. So, Pastor Busman, as the, the text that we have today gets started, Jesus comes back to, to doing miracles again, to showing his divine power. He's, he's had a couple of sections here in Matthew where, where he's been doing a little more teaching. Now he comes back to that string of miracles. While he was saying these things to them, a ruler comes in, kneels before him. Maybe just to, to remind us, what has he been saying? How does that relate to what he's about to do here? Right. I, I can remember this is one of the first things that, that we learn as you enter into a text that the text you're looking at is part of a greater text. And to know what Jesus was saying is, is very key to what he's about to do. He had, If you back up in the text a little bit, you can see that Jesus gives two very, very short parables. One, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things, in other words, while he was saying the new things are here, uh, open your eyes and see, Jesus says things like, he who has ears to hear, let them hear. While he is saying that the new is here, and there's no greater way to display that the new is here uh, than to show victory over death itself. Uh, and this is Matthew's uh, approach to uh, the ruler and his daughter, that the girl is uh, already in the state of, of being dead. Uh, so Jesus is, is showing us right away that he has power and authority over even death itself. And so I think I think you said earlier the ruler here is is Jairus. We know that from the other gospel writers right. that that this is Jairus, and he comes to Jesus, and and what does he what does he want Jesus to do? Uh, so he he falls right on his knees, and uh, he wants Jesus to uh, specifically lay his hand on her, and she will live. Uh, just this simple uh, simple statement: lay your hand on her, and and she will live. Do this, and she will, and she will, uh, she will rise from the dead. So, and the theme of touch is going to become important, I think, in several of these texts as we go forward. So, Jesus, he he goes with Jairus, his disciples come with him, but he gets interrupted, and he gets interrupted by a woman who's got a she's suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years. Why, why is that? account of who she is and what she suffered from. What's the significance of that, biblically speaking? Right. You know, you can read different commentaries uh, speaking about her medical condition, what it might be, what it's not, and, and these kinds of things. Uh, I don't think that uh, we have any uh, necessarily uh, a doctor's order about what she has, but what the scriptures say about blood is that blood is very, very connected to life. And, and as she is and has been for the last 12 years, it's very physical, uh, physically, uh, well, it's evident that she's losing her very life. She's been ceremonially, ritually unclean for the last 12 years, unable to participate with the, with the larger people of God in ceremony and 
sacrifice and things like this, but it's very, very evident to all who are seeing her that her life is is uh, slowly, literally flowing out of her. So you're dealing with a dead girl and a dying woman here in these texts. So we, we're invited here by the way that this account is written, to compare these two women and to see them in, in a similar light, that that one has died and the other one is dying, and Jesus is going to give both of them life by by his touch. And that's what the this woman with the discharge of blood, she she's thinking to herself, I just need to to touch him. Is that some kind of a superstition or is there more going on there? As, as people interpret these texts, you, you know, you could you could make the case that this woman is, is seeing Jesus as this kind of miracle man, this healer, as we kind of see the crowds sometimes seeing him, that she has this same kind of idea. But the language of the text seems to make a different case, and, and it does make a different case. Uh, and that's what the language that she uses, and our translations don't always pick this up because it translates these words as healed, as this uh, therapeutic kind of, you know, if I do this, I'll be healed, or Jesus saying, go, your faith has healed you. But underlying in this word, it's not therapeutic, it's sozo, right? It's, it's this saving word. If only I touch his uh, garment, the fringe of his garment, uh, I will be saved, not I will be made well, but I will be saved, not only delivered from this discharge of blood, but there's there's this faith that's connected to it. Uh, in a very real sense, she already, of course, knows who Jesus is more than just some uh, miracle, miracle man. Um, you know, Dr. Veltz would talk about how it's often the minor characters who are these great displays of faith throughout the Gospels, and and this is certainly way beyond superstition for her. Uh, it's, it's really her faithfulness in knowing who Jesus is and what he's capable of. Right. She, she comes to Jesus with faith. Jesus' own answer says that. And so we shouldn't we should not see this woman as one who is somehow superstitious, thinking that if she touches some sort of magical garment or magical person that she will be made well. No, she, she has faith that Jesus will, in fact, save her. As, as you mentioned, the, the Greek verb there is not a thera- therapeuo, which you, you can hear in that, the English words that, that we get therapeutic, right, dealing with the healing of the body. The Greek word there is, is sozo, which, which means to save. It, it's, it's an even greater healing than just the the healing of the body this is a, a full and complete healing think uh, think back in at the very beginning of of the gospel right what is what is Jesus name and why is he given it because he will save his people right and and this is the faith that this woman has and Jesus Jesus acknowledges that in his answer to her take us into that pastor Busman right Jesus right away uh, does not condemn the woman for reaching out and, and touching his garment. He simply turns and looks at her and, and take heart. Uh, your faith has saved you. Your faith in your text has made you well. Your faith has 
literally saves you. That's what faith does. Faith doesn't, you know, somehow if you have more faith or greater faith or anything like this, it doesn't somehow make you a greater candidate for, for healing, but faith does what it does. And that is, that is save. Um, not only, not only is she cured from her discharge of blood, readmitted to the community and allowed to take part in, in sacrifice and all of these things, but she's literally given the greater, uh, what she needs even more than that. And that is, uh, salvation, what Jesus has, has come to bring. Right, and and that is that is what she receives instantly. I, I think too that the fact that Jesus calls her daughter is is an amazing thing as well. Especially given what what Jairus has come to Jesus just a moment, my daughter has died, and now here is Jesus calling this woman daughter, one who would have been outside the community as as unclean, whose life has literally been flowing away. Now she is restored to life, and and even called daughter by Jesus. What a what an amazing gift. As then the text moves on, meanwhile, right, Jesus has, has been going to the ruler's house, and, and when he gets to the ruler's house, what's the scene there, Pastor Busman? Oh, it's, it's, it's a busy place. Uh, people already know that his, his daughter has died. The quote-unquote professional mourners are already there uh, playing their music, making a, uh, a great commotion. As the text, uh, as the text lets us know, and uh, and and for Jesus, they're just in the way. They're in the way. They need to, they need to be removed from the scene, and uh, he casts them out. You know, skipping ahead to uh, to twenty five, the, the text says he puts them outside. But this is the, this is the word to throw something out. You know, it's it's not just a scooting people out of the way. He's literally throwing them out because they're in the way of what what he's. Uh, what he's about to do, but the the thing that gets me about these people, these aren't people who are confused about what death looks like. It's not now. Well, maybe the girl wasn't really dead, or maybe she, uh, maybe she had just slipped into a coma or something like this. I mean, these are these are people who are around death all the time. They're not confused about what death looks like. They know exactly what has happened to this girl, uh, and this is why they give the reaction they give to Jesus when when Jesus said, you know, go away, the girl is not dead, but she's sleeping. You know, you can see them kind of roll their eyes at him as, you know, who is this guy? You've got to be kidding me. This is death. This is what it looks like. And, um, you know, many of your listeners uh, and even beyond people in the Lutheran Church, we all know what death looks like, too. Uh, you know, we come face-to-face with it probably more often than we like. So when you think about that, if we were to walk into a funeral home or something like this and say, oh, they're not dead, they're just sleeping, you just kind of raise up and gasp. Who does this person think they are? This is, of course, death. It's obvious. Uh, But Jesus, again, has power, authority over death, and uh, his word most certainly uh, brings life to the uh, to death, creates, does all of these things. So what Jesus says, of course, goes here. Hmm. 
I want to I want to focus in on Jesus' words there a little bit more, where he says that the girl is not dead but sleeping. And and as you as you said, I mean these these mourners they know that this girl really is dead, and and she is really dead. I mean we we need to say say that that she has actually died. She's not in a a coma or she didn't faint or something like that. But she is actually dead. So. Why does Jesus say that she's just sleeping? What's the what's the bigger point? And I think what's the what's the hope that we have here in these words of Jesus, Pastor Busman? And you have to love the way the New Testament does this all over, uh, all over with death. And Jesus even has to clarify this for his own disciples with the raising of Lazarus. Right? They're confused. Jesus, you know, after he waits for four days, he uh, tells the disciples that Lazarus has fallen asleep, and the disciples are confused, and they say, well, if he's sleeping, he'll surely get better. And he has to actually clarify to them and tell them more up front, look, he's dead. Let's go. Uh, but the New Testament all over the place, Paul does this too, equates death with sleeping. Not that, you know, not that we're lying there sleeping and are going to wake up, but it, it does give us hope, you know, as soon as we see a sleeping person, you know that person's going to going to get up, and what what comfort that gives to to a Christian to look at death that way, not just to say, well, it, you know, it's it's death. It really doesn't matter. The the New Testament also calls this an enemy. Right? The last enemy to be defeated, destroyed, is death. But in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the grief, in the midst of the pain, to know that we have a God who has power over that simply through his, uh, through his word, through his reaching out actually in the midst of it, not, not a shout down from the heavens, but actually coming into the midst of this little girl's house, um, stretching out his hand, uh, entering into her, her very own death and raising her up. Just to, to speak to that hope, you you pictured you pictured it earlier as if you know what what if what if you or I or, or someone walked into a funeral home and and said of the of the person lying in the casket, this person is not dead but but sleeping. Imagine the the shock on people's faces, and yet as as Christians and especially as as pastors, you and I, Pastor Busman, this is what we preach at a Christian funeral, right? That that the person is sleeping that Christ will come and, and wake them up. Is it I mean it that's the hope that we still proclaim as Christians today, isn't it? This is absolutely the hope that we have. And we sing it, you know, we sing it at Easter, awake O sleeper, rise from uh, rise from death. And and that, and again that's not to that's not to take away from grief. That's not to say that it's a sin or something to be sad, but it's to give us that comfort give us that hope that we don't you know the scriptures speak this way too that that we don't grieve like others who who have no hope i mean look this ruler uh like you said called Jairus by other gospels doesn't he's not just sitting there you know wallowing in the floor he knows exactly where to go he knows exactly where to go and he goes he goes straight to jesus uh, Jesus has the authority, the power to raise this girl from the dead. Jairus knows it, and and that's where his that's where his hope lies. Same for us. 
Right. Yeah. To to look to the one who is who is able to look at this worst enemy that there is. Right. As you said, death is is the enemy, but Jesus is able to look at that worst enemy of all death, and call it a mere sleep because of because of what he has done. Because he has he has undone death, and and on the last day we know that 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 enemy will be put under his feet once and for all, and and that's the hope that we have as as Christians that that for us death has been defeated by Jesus this greatest enemy of all is is now asleep one that something that is as you said very well when you look at someone who's sleeping you know they're going to get up so when you look at a christian who's died you know they're going to get up they will rise on the last day with Christ and and that is our hope as christians still today and Jesus he brings a, a foretaste of that to this to this girl to this to Jairus's daughter here in, in Matthew chapter 9 and and it's i mean Goodness, if if I saw this happen, Pastor Busman, I think I would report about it too. Which which is how Matthew ends ends the account of, of this raising of the of the little girl. That that the report of this went through all that district. So what's I mean, what's the report that's going out? Right, I, and that that's the big question: uh, who's reporting and what are they reporting? And and it seems like the report that goes out is even if it's as simple as. Jairus's daughter is raised or my daughter is raised or I was bleeding for 12 years and now I'm not bleeding anymore that that report is is going out but I guess another question could be asked how was the report then received and it hits people's ears much differently and you know I guess their interpretation of uh, then who Jesus is as a result of that is really what throws you into the the remainder of the text uh, because we're going to see people react to these things uh, much differently uh, as 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 we'll as we'll see is Jesus just a miracle worker that they had seen before uh, who by whose authority is he doing these things uh, or is he actually maybe God who's come into the creation uh, made his dwelling among us or to, or to remain a uh, Messian about it, Emmanuel, um, God with us in this place uh, even now. So the, the rest of these texts will begin to, uh, to sort that out. And we will pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO looking at the last part of Matthew chapter 9 with Pastor John Bussman. We're going to take that break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Thursday, February 6th, we're studying Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 38 with Pastor John Busman of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Cullman, Alabama. 
Pastor Busman, prior to the break, we left off after the report of what Jesus has done for Jairus's daughter, for the, the woman with the discharge of blood. That has gone out. That goes out. Jesus continues traveling. And as he continues traveling, Matthew tells us that two blind men follow Jesus, and they cry out a title for Jesus that we haven't heard in quite a while in Matthew's gospel. How do these two blind men address Jesus? Yeah, verse 27, uh, two blind men have mercy on us, son of David. Uh, This is the first time he's referred to as the son of David uh, or called by this title since the very first verse of the very first chapter of Matthew. So what does what does that mean? Uh, calling him the uh, the son of David does it mean that rightly that he is not only indeed the promise carrier but the promise fulfiller uh, who will, as David had wanted to do, build God a house. Literally, as Jesus says, uh, he is the new and greater temple, the fulfiller of the everlasting covenant. Uh, what goes through people's mind when they hear uh, Jesus is the son of David, the reestablisher of the uh, of the throne? Uh, but these people know who Jesus is, the son of David. Uh, and it's probably the great irony of this text is the first ones to recognize Jesus <laughs> haven't even seen a thing. Uh, the Pharisees see everything that Jesus is doing. They uh, certainly hear everything that Jesus is, is preaching, uh, but they're the very ones to uh, to become spiritually blind, uh, as it were. So these these two men, and I, I guess we should say, Pastor Bussman, that, that they've heard this report or maybe other reports that are going out about Jesus, and that's why they're they're labeling him the son of David, this very messianic title. Right. They can't literally see, but the word, uh, and, and again, how, you know, like I said before, how is the word received? Uh, these blind men are receiving that word uh, with faith, not necessarily craving Jesus to just do signs and wonders because they like to see them or or because they're hungry and want more bread or something like this, they come to Jesus uh, in faith, as the text will will tell us. So they, they go into the house with Jesus, and, and he asks, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They say, yes, Lord, and he, he touches their eyes. And again, we have Jesus' touch. We've seen this in, in several of the miracles that he's done. What's the significance of Jesus' touch here? All right, he, t- he touches them. Uh, you know, other areas of this gospel and uh, even other gospels tell you that Jesus might speak uh, in the presence of somebody or that he doesn't even have to be there. He may just tell somebody to go, that, oh, your daughter is, is well. Jesus doesn't have to touch them in order for them to be healed. But the significance that Jesus is not distant, this, this Messian theme, Emmanuel, God with us in the midst of this, of this suffering, in the midst of this pain, disease, uh, even death, but not only in the midst, but literally stretching out his hand 
and taking it from them. This is what's so uh, offensive to to Pharisees, Sadducees, is that you know if Jesus is touching these people who are blind, touching these people who are bleeding, touching these people who are dead, he's the one who becomes unclean. You, you'll notice oftentimes that after these things take place that Jesus is not able to enter into any towns. And I, I think we just automatically assume that's because of how many crowds are following him, but the people are seeing him as, as maybe a miracle worker, but he's certainly an unclean miracle worker. You can't just go around touching all of these people's, all of these people without consequence, but he does. Uh, he, 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 uh, goes to to even the most the most unclean, and does the same thing for them. Not because he has to, um, but because he's demonstrating something far greater. Uh, that he is literally bearing their diseases, bearing their ailments, and and eventually going to take them straight to the cross. As as we heard in Matthew chapter eight, where where Matthew quoted from. Isaiah chapter 53, that, that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases, and we continue to see him do that here for these two blind men. He touches them, says, according to your faith, be it done to you. There's that, that word faith again. This is not superstition, but faith in Jesus, and here is the son of David. Their eyes are opened, and, and then we get another one. This is not the first time we've encountered this in Matthew's gospel, but it's, it's unusual, at least to our ears, I think, every time we hear it. Jesus Jesus tells these two men not to say anything about what's happened. Why, why would Jesus do that? Right, so some people would say that Jesus is using simple reverse psychology, that he really wants them to tell them, so he's saying don't say anything so that they'll actually go out and, and say that. But that's a, that's a pretty slippery slope if we're all of a sudden applying reverse psychology to some of the things that Jesus that Jesus says. So we don't want to go there. Uh, but this word is going out that uh, what has happened? Well, Jesus is uh, doing miracles, uh, doing this, doing that. The word that the word that goes out about Jesus uh, needs to remain that he is uh, Emmanuel. God with us. Most importantly, they're calling him the son of David. What does that mean? Uh, does that mean that he's going up to Jerusalem to restore the uh, literal physical throne there in the to the house and the lineage of David? Or does it mean something else? Uh, what does the reign and rule of God mean? actually look like. So as Jesus is uh, sternly charging people not to pay anyone, uh, perhaps he's avoiding false ideas about what the reign and rule of God actually is, and that as we saw and as we have seen uh, about faith, not necessarily about miracles, uh, it has to do with the forgiveness of sins, more so than eliminating the Romans out of Jerusalem. And this is elsewhere in the Gospels as well. He, uh, my mind goes to the, the paralytic, which is in the beginning of Matthew 9. Before Jesus ever uh, tells him to rise, take up his bed, and go, he uh, gives him the forgiveness of sins. This is what the reign and rule of God is about. 
forgiveness, life, salvation. Uh, nothing about Romans, in other words. I, I think that answer makes good sense right here, particularly because, as you pointed out, for the first time since the very beginning of the gospel, Jesus has been called Son of David, and that would have been a pretty loaded term for a lot of the people hearing it. There would have been tons of different expectations swirling around as to what that would have meant. It would have excited some people for all the wrong reasons. And and so in this case, it it, it does seem to be quite plausible that Jesus would say, I don't I'm not ready for that right now. This is this is not the time for all the events leading to his death and his resurrection, as we know they're they're coming towards the end of Matthew's gospel. And so so here he says, don't say anything right now, because he, he doesn't want those false expectations. That that seems a very good explanation right here. Of course, <laughs> these two blind men don't listen. <laughs> they they go and and do what Jesus said said not to. I mean, they're they're disobeying Jesus. Is well, this this question was posed to me once, Pastor Busman, and I I don't know if I I'm not sure exactly how to answer it. But they, was that the right thing to do? That they or was that like I don't want to tell people not to tell people about Jesus today, but what, the disobedience here. What 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 do we make of this? Right, you don't want people you don't want people to not speak of Jesus, but you also don't want people to speak of Jesus incorrectly. Uh, and we, yeah, so we certainly don't want to discourage evangelism. And, and, and I think there are many people in churches who don't, quote unquote, evangelize because they might be afraid of saying the wrong thing or, or not knowing what to say. But if we look here, you know, Jesus isn't uh, talking about, okay, you know, some sort of inward workings of the Trinity or two natures in Christ or something like this. This is very basic. This is creedal. This is simply who Jesus is and why he has come. And this is what we teach to our children from day one. Who is Jesus? He is God. Why has he come? Uh, to take away the sins of the world. And as people go and spread this news throughout the region, this is the very simple thing that the, that the people don't get. Uh, ultimately, it's 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 why they choose Barabbas instead of Jesus. He's proven against the Romans, right? And and this is not the reign and rule of God that Jesus has come to bring. Not the reign and rule of God. They, you know, certainly not the one that that they want. You know, and and as you look back at David, it's. It's really interesting that that these blind men should cry out for for mercy and call him uh, the son of David at the same time. One of these uh, deep tracks back in Second Samuel chapter five is as G, as uh, David is about to send his men into Jerusalem to uh, to take Jerusalem from the Jebusites. They're going to go through that dry water shaft and and pop up in the middle of the city. The Jebusites' defense against David was to line the city with the lame and the blind, and the text goes on to say because David hated the lame and the blind. And we don't know why David hated the lame and the blind, but the text is very clear that he does. Uh, so this new and greater son of David uh, approaches the blind much differently than, 
than than David does, not through killing, but through, again, uh, making alive, making alive through faith um, that they now can that they now can see. That 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 bringing up of Second Samuel chapter five there, which I, I'd forgotten about, but yeah, it's it's there. Is is I think it's helpful then when we think about well, what does what does the reign of this son of David look like, and and what has he come to do? Here here is one who is greater than even David, who who reigns perfectly as as king. So I, yeah, I, I appreciate that. So then as as the text continues, we, we've got more more people coming, right? So they're going away. Here go the the two two men who are blind that can now see. And here comes someone else to Jesus. And this one is a demon-oppressed man who's who's mute. What What's happening here next, Pastor Buston? We're in verse 32 and 33. Yeah, we're, we're getting to, uh, to all the groups here. Uh, demon-oppressed man who's also mute. And the demon was cast out and the mute man spoke. This is a lot of the, a lot of times in and Jesus's miracles and, and things like this, there's always, there, there are always more details than we want. You, you look at even uh, the man born blind in John chapter nine and the healing is over in a matter of verses. And the rest of the chapter is about the response to that. It's like, well, wait just a minute. How did it, how did it happen? Who is this guy? Uh, demon oppressed man. Who, what was he doing when he was demon oppressed? Uh, how many demons were there? We just we don't get any of those details. You're you're given a person with a problem, and a severe problem, uh, a community outcasting problem, and and right away it's taken care of. No questions, nothing. Jesus takes care of uh, of him right away. Demon cast out, mute man spoke. And then we finally start to get the reactions from the people. First, the crowds, uh, and then, uh, and then the Pharisees here. You're right, right. So we and we've seen some reactions in the past. They've kind of faded into the background a bit, but now Matthew brings them out once again. So he tells us first about the crowds. He says that they marvel. Well, what what does that what does that convey to us? And then what do they what do they say, Pastor Busman? Yeah, it's interesting. Crowds marveling. We would expect with the reactions for everybody else that it might say the crowds believe, the crowds have faith, but they are marvelled. They're wowed at this. And that kind of gets you back into the, well, what's the report that's going out about Jesus? Why are the crowds there? And and we can start to ask those questions and maybe not necessarily answer those questions with these texts, but we can begin to look at the crowds a little differently and, and see what they're what they're actually doing here. So the crowds are marveling. Why? Because well, no one has ever done anything like this. Never was anything like this seen in Israel, right? They've seen or heard through the scriptures a lot. You go back to, you know, beginning at 1 Kings 17 and work all the way through the beginning of 2 Kings, and you see all the works of Elijah and Elisha, and there's a ton there. 
and a ton there that Jesus, too, is doing, like multiplying food and uh, not only raising uh, people from the dead, but raising widows' sons from the dead. A lot of things that are going on have been similar and point Jesus to being a prophet, a, a new and a greater prophet. But all of these other things, uh, blind people seeing, demons being cast out, they haven't seen any of this before. So they they know something is different about Jesus. Uh, his power, his authority is uh, certainly greater than all of these others. But they don't quite know what yet. The Pharisees, on the other hand, <laughs> sounds like they have their minds made up. How does Matthew the introduce Pharise- their the, reaction? The Pharisees are right. They've got their mind made up. Uh, the Pharisees are not on Jesus's side, hardly ever. Now there are a couple instances where they where they come to him and are, are trying to feel him out, trying to figure out you know which which school of thought he's coming from. But most of the time, we see the Pharisees. Uh, coming to Jesus in order to trap him or uh, to get him twisted up in his words. And here, they, there's no conversation between them. They're not, you know, just kind of standing in the background, following around, trying to figure out what's going on. They've got their minds made up. They've got everything figured out. He casts out demons by the prince of demons. That's it. That's the easiest explanation. Nobody can argue with us. This is just Satan. He's got power too. And, uh, and, and Jesus is that that's that's where he's getting all of his all of his power straight from the devil and and Matthew's going to bring that back out this this accusation against Jesus will come back into play later Jesus will deal with it a little more forcefully later for the time being though as Matthew continues his narrative now he's he's preparing us for the second big discourse that Jesus will give in chapter 10. And so he's, he's getting ready to move into that. And now the the miracles that he's done stand as the background, but Jesus is going to to do something now. He, he keeps teaching, right? He keeps traveling and, and healing. And he looks at the crowds, and, and what's his reaction to the crowds that he sees, Pastor Busman? You love it. You know, even if, even if the crowds are simply marveling and maybe they're believing— Maybe they're not yet believing, uh, but Jesus doesn't leave them out. He doesn't leave them alone. He continues to go to every city and village. He continues to enter into the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of his reign and rule, uh, what it truly is, what it truly means that he is Emmanuel, that he is here in the flesh. In verse 36, he sees the crowds and he has compassion. Uh, he's, he's literally physically moved by seeing these crowds because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You, you go back and you look at the reaction. You know, if the, Pharisees, if the Pharisees are going to come so violently against Jesus that they're, that they're basically saying that, that he's working uh, through Satan, right? They can't deny what's happening. It's, it's, it's very, very evident to them that something is happening. But if they're coming, if they're coming at Jesus so strongly, uh, how in the world are they going to come at just a, a random passerby? Uh, you know, we see later that 
they're devouring widows' houses and things like this. They have no uh, compassion, as Jesus has uh, on anyone. This is, you know, Jesus is, is not randomly talking about sheep and shepherds and, and all of this. Uh, John probably more fully brings this out in chapter 10. Uh, but Jesus is going back all the way to, to Ezekiel, you know, the woe to the, to the shepherds. They're not, they're not taking care of anybody. They're only looking out for themselves. And God has a great promise there uh, in that Ezekiel text, too. Uh, I, I myself will search for my sheep. I alone will, uh, will seek them out. And here Jesus is uh, doing that very thing. He sees the crowds and he has compassion on them. Um, not just sheep without a shepherd, but harassed and helpless. You know, somebody's, it's, it's not that they're just kind of hanging out on a hillside, not knowing what to do, but, but they're actually being pursued. They're being harassed and there's not, no one to save. Um, this also doesn't exclude just a, you know, quote unquote, random passerby, a random person in the crowd. You know, you don't have to be blind. You don't have to be demon possessed. You don't have to be dead or have an issue of blood for Jesus to show up into your house. And he has compassion even on, even on the greater crowds. Yeah, that, that's a that's a beautiful thing. As, as Jesus, he recognizes that the the hatred that the Pharisees have expressed toward him, that 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 is is that has been harassing his these crowds, and, and so he has compassion on these crowds, and and then he speaks to his disciples, which is going to lead us then into to chapter ten. Pastor Busman, what does Jesus say to his disciples here at the end that closes out Matthew chapter 9? All right, so this is going to circle us back around to one of the original comments I made about Jesus being the new and greater Joshua, because he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send the laborers out into the harvest. And this is the very thing that he's going to do in chapter 10, instead of Instead of sending 12 tribes into the land, he's sending 12, uh, 12 apostles into the land to, to do this very thing, uh, this, this new uh, conquest, not through killing, but through, uh, through making alive. And there's always a need for, for more, right? Uh, it can't just, be, can't just be one or 12. The harvest is plentiful. And, and the harvest, right? It's not... It's not there's plenty of fields to be sown. It's it's harvest time, and we need laborers to uh, to get to work. Pastor Busman, we just have about three minutes here left on the morning. Any any points that we didn't hit that you'd like to bring up or or summarize for us? Bring bring things home for us today. Well, I guess the the biggest thing here in the text is uh, not necessarily getting wrapped up in the in the miracles, they're important, right? But what 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 is the text saying? What's the confession about Jesus? Who is he? Uh, we go back to the genealogy in the beginning. He's the son of David. He's Lord. He's Christ. He's Emmanuel. Uh, not only has he come to bring restoration of the land, restoration and body, but more importantly, the forgiveness of sins. 
so that the restoration that some may have in the body today is not only for today. Um, Jairus's daughter died again sometime in the first century. Uh, but because of faith, uh, yet she will live again. So always pointing us to uh, who Jesus came to be, yet still is as living and reigning Lord, Son of David, our own Emmanuel. Pastor John Busman is the pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Coleman, Alabama, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 38. Pastor Busman, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks so much. Who is Jesus? He is the one who has power, even over death, for, for a young girl who has died, for, for an older woman who has been losing her life over the course of 12 years. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Who is Jesus? He is the son of David, the promised fulfilled, the true king over Israel, the one who reigns with the forgiveness of sins and the promise of resurrection and life everlasting. Who is Jesus? He is the one who has power over demons. Who is Jesus? He is the good shepherd, the one who sees the crowds and has compassion on them, who, whose heart goes out to them. And so he sends for the preaching of his word. That's who Jesus is. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.